0: Now how is this for a title, when more is not better? We have always believed that more is better, that we should have more money and more growth in our economy, but what we are finding is that people are not necessarily benefiting from that. Roger Martin is with us. You may know the name. He was the former dean of the Rotman School for a very long time, the Rotman School of Business. Then uh, the Prosperity Institute, named for him, the Martin Prosperity Institute, something called the Good Jobs Institute. But he has written now 12 books, and this one is called When More Is Not Better, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And we're thrilled to have you with us. Welcome.
1: It's great to be talking to you again. <laughs> yes, uh, it's
0: It's been too long, that's for sure.
1: Now, when you talk
0: about the state and future of democratic capitalism, first and foremost, you're making a distinction between that and communist capitalism that we're seeing in China, for example
1: no, I am and 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 to be honest uh, uh, Pamela, that was one of the one of the motivations for writing the book. Uh, I mean, I think just as in the Cold War, there was a battle between between democracy and com and uh, communism there's i think now a battle between uh, democratic capitalism. America and an increasingly capitalist communism, uh, which is China. Now you wouldn't say it's completely capitalist, yet no. but boy, it's boy, it's heading <coughs> heading in that direction. It's performing uh, performing relatively well on a, on a number of dimensions that we usually count. Um, and so, so, so you're absolutely right. That that we have to, I think, make democratic capitalism work and work great, or it will be overtaken by other systems.
0: Your biggest criticism, I want to come back to the China thing a little bit later, but your biggest criticism is our obsession, I mean, the royal we here, business, uh, Canada, the United States, our obsession with efficiency, just in time, you don't need to store everything in the basement, it'll just get delivered uh, tomorrow morning and you can have it. And that in the process, we've lost our ability to respond and nowhere is that more obvious than in the COVID, in the pandemic.
1: Yes, I, and, and interestingly enough, I put this book entirely to bed uh, before the before COVID, and so and so I wasn't actually speaking in the book about COVID, but speaking about the kind of situations that you right. get into. And 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 sure enough, here it came. And yes, that was treating all slack as waste and inefficient so it's inefficient to have one extra nurse in your ho- in your hospital let's get rid of her, him or him or her so we have exactly the right number of of nurses get rid of excess PPE filling up our storerooms and costing us working capital. Those, kind, those kinds of push for the extremes of efficiency um, are, are what has accidentally uh, created the current problems we're seeing in democratic capitalism is, is, is the view of the book.
0: So no resilience is, I think, the word you use, which is when, yes. then when something happens and it, it doesn't have to be as drastic as COVID, it can be a snowstorm which stops your just in time efficient delivery system and then it starts to break down
1: sure or as you know living living in uh, in central central canada you know all it took was one branch in ohio hitting a wireline mm-hmm. then then all of the east uh, the uh, east coast northeast and central canada goes offline because it's all this Incredibly tightly coupled system that has no resilience uh, uh, built into it. You know, we were with all without power for what was it? Like ten days, I think. It yeah, did. it was a very was. long
0: time, yeah. right?
1: And one branch hitting one line in Ohio. That's what they they came back and 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 tracked it, traced it all all down yeah. to that. Isn't that is a system that lacks a resilience entirely?
0: So. It's this odd situation we're in, which is growth has never been better. The stock market has never seen higher peaks. Uh, there's more and interesting work, but it isn't filtering down. People aren't benefiting from all of this growth, which is supposedly the product of efficiency.
1: No, absolutely. and And what people I don't think understand clearly enough is that the, the, the numbers on this are clear. Like, I think people are like, oh, I, this is a little strange. No, the numbers are crystal clear. Now, I focus the, the, the book on, on, on the U.S. Uh-huh. And in many respects, Canada is not in as dire situation as these, these uh, numbers are. But in the U.S., up till 1976, as, as far back as we can measure median family income, it grew at 2.4% compound annual a year. Why is that important? It means that it doubles in thirty years in approximately a generation right it 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 it, right. uh, it doubled so in that era, all this movement towards being more efficient and more productive did do the opposite of what you said. It did filter down to 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 the to the average American but since nineteen seventy six that rate has fallen to one quarter of its previous 0.6% per year and the way to think about it is now the income of the median family doubles every century century so over three gener- uh, generations so i think you have a lot of people sitting in the middle of the distribution saying yes pamela the economy is growing yes the stock market is up but 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 i am i am like uh, kind of running in sand uh mm-hmm. here And it's hard for that median family to be sitting around the table saying to to themselves, the father and the mother, saying, you know what, Um, our kids are likely to be twice as prosperous uh, at our age than we are and now they can't say that they can say our kids are going to be slightly more prosperous than than we are and maybe their kids and their kids kids and their kids 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 may finally uh, get to get to uh, a meaningfully higher level of prosperity so they're discouraged and and we found that in in our in our research they're discouraged and befuddled because they they would say things like in our in our interviews I thought I did everything I was supposed to do. I was supposed to get an education. I was supposed to work hard, but I can barely make ends meet. What, what, what did I, what did I do wrong?
0: And I think those are some of the stats we saw uh, in, well, in the middle of this COVID crisis, which is people who couldn't hang on, like they didn't have enough money in their bank account to get through the next three months, in some cases, the next six weeks
1: yes absolutely and 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 again it's because it 's because they're living hand to mouth and they also are just not not seeing a future so I like I, you know we, know we know from World War II, rationing and and sending your kids to uh, to war people were willing to hang in for a hope of mm-hmm. of something something get better, but in due course, people sort of say. Why, why, why hang in uh, to, to this? And one of the things, uh, one of the things I feel most strongly about is, is I think people are willing to hang into things when everybody's in it together. So the Great Depression was was horrible, right? right? From nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty three, you know, GDP goes down, uh, goes down a quarter. It's, it's you know, it's miserable for for a decade. But one interesting thing about the Great Depression. Uh, was that the incomes of the highly most uh, high income uh, uh, people uh, fell more than the median? So it actually hit the highs harder than the 1%. Than, than, the, than the average. Yeah, the one yeah. percent got hit harder than and and so every American could say or every Canadian could say at that time, this really sucks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we're all in it together.
0: And that's and, not what the case is now. No. One percent no. is doing better and everybody better else than it is ever doing. And it
1: isn't right. even close. It is it isn't even close. They're doing so much better than they ever have. It's not even close. And people would be surprised at, at this panel, but it only took the that family in the middle of the distribution 10 years to get back to 1929 level and another mm-hmm. and another five years to double. So 15 years they 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 uh, doubled, right? Now, right, uh, since 1976, that same family is looking to to 100 years for doubling. So not not only are we not in it together, these other people are doing awesome and we aren't, uh, but uh, it's going to take, we're we're in this for a, a hell of a long time. And that's why we have the discouragement.
0: Take us back a little bit because these things seem to, everybody thinks it's, the law of the land, that it's a rule, that it came down from the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) Where do these theories come from that, you know, growth is good, efficiency is great, we must get down, as you say, to 1.35 nurses on every floor, not two. Um, This kind of thinking, where, where does it come from? And it's almost like once one guy does it, the next guy goes, oh, well, that must be the way to do it.
1: Yes, yes, and it ratchets ratchets up. Yes, um, well, I mean, really, it it starts back with you know famous economist Adam Smith's uh, mm-hmm. uh, 1776, The Wealth of Nations, right where 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 we all know the story in in Wealth of Nations of the pin factory and how it would be more efficient if rather than Pamela makes an entire pin and Roger makes an, an entire uh, right. pin. John uh, makes an entire pin. Pamela makes pin heads. I make pin shafts, and John puts them together. Division of labor that'll make you that'll make you more efficient, and so and that was widely adopted in in the in the U.S. Read by the the framers of of the Constitution, um, and then then along came David Ricardo in uh, in. Uh, uh, in the uh, early 19th century and saying, hey, uh, um, we, would, we would be better off if the Brits, uh, who don't have, don't have sun, uh, raise sheep, make, uh, uh, make uh, cloth, and sell it to uh, Portuguese uh, folks who have the sun, uh, grow grapes, make wine, and ship that across the comparative advantage. will be better off if they trade rather than each doing it themselves. That kind of further exacerbated it. Got into the business world with Frederick Winslow Taylor, with scientific management in the early 20th uh, uh, century, where he said we can be way more efficient if we're more scientific about how we do it. W. Edwards Deming, the great quality uh, guru, said, "Well, if we eliminate waste, we'll be, we'll we'll be able to have high quality and and uh, low cost." All of that to a point was all great. And and what I'd argue is for the 200 years from the start of the America and Adam Smith, actually at the same time, uh, book for those 200 years, more was better. Right. And it, and as I said, it trickled down, but what I think happened is just, it became so obsessive and, and and we took things farther than Adam Smith, David Ricardo, or Deming would ever, ever say. So Deming never said, get rid of slack. Deming said, there's an optimal amount of slack, and it isn't zero. And you got to right. figure, figure that out. But no, we've done what you said with nurses. No, no, that, that, that 0.35 of, a, of, a, of an FTE nurse is, is waste, and let's get rid of it. Whereas Deming would have said... No, that's that's slack, and you need to have a certain amount of slack in the system to have to uh, to have good operations. And this is something the great, successful, and beloved retail giant Costco, uh, mm-hmm. uh, like Costco, is as smart as anybody else on doing the staffing algorithm to say how many people exactly do we need on the shop floor. But then, then what they do is they just add add a chunk. They just say yeah. that's what that's what optimal says but we don't kind of believe that that's the best customer experience. We'll just kind of have some extra. So if, you know, if Pamela's in in, in there- If I have a question,
0: where is the- Yeah,
1: yeah, where is the, there'll be somebody running over and Pamela won't have to be thinking, oh my God, they're trying to race away as soon as possible. They point over there. No, they walk Pamela over to there and say, is is it one like this or one like this or one uh, one like that? And so, and it's the most successful in its category. And it embraces the idea of slack. It also pays in excess of $20 an hour starting wages in retail. And people would say, well, that, there you go. There's waste. You can get away with 11, 12, 13, 13 right. bucks. What the, what the heck are you doing? But they have. But this they figured it food. out they 've figured it out. they say we want Pamela to have a fantastic experience when she when she comes here, so she 'll come back and when she 's here she 'll fill her her basket uh, mm-hmm. if, uh, up to the top with 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 goods and and it's having that more sort of Enlightened view, I think, of 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 the system and how the system as a whole works, rather than having this sort of mechanistic. Let's chop it into pieces and say, "Oh, you're responsible for keeping those wages down, and you're responsible for customer service." And while this person is responsible for keeping the wages down, uh, unrealizingly, they're making the job of customer service impossible, uh, and so and so you get a place that that has efficiency except when it comes to having customers coming into the store and buying stuff. Well, it's a
0: pretty simple theory, actually. If you have happy uh, staff, they're going to treat the customer better, and then you're going to have a happier customer. I mean, this isn't rocket science.
1: No, no. <laughs> this is, but, and, and this is this is uh, what uh, I'm sure you know him well. Izzy Sharp uh, says right. he said- he said, you know, he, he said, hmm, the only way we're going to get our staff, the staff of the Four Seasons uh, Hotels to treat our guests, the way we want them to uh, be treated is to treat our staff that way. And then he laughs at himself sort of and says, this is not exactly a new idea. I believe it's called <laughs> the golden rule. <laughs> but but you're right. It's 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 sensible, but... It isn't actually sensible. If you take this mechanistic view that says, what do you mean? What do you mean Uh, how we treat staff? That has nothing to do with how guests are treated. We have a rule book that says, this is how you must treat your guests. We'll mystery shop you. We'll fire you if you don't treat them properly. Those two things are unrelated.
0: You talk about the other side of this, which is Wells Fargo, right? Which is these companies get a thing in their head, which is the way we're going to judge our success is that every client should have 14 bank accounts. And that way we'll know that they're happy because they keep getting more and getting more. But I don't need 14 bank accounts.
1: No, no, that's right. But that's you're absolutely right. They get this thing in their head, and 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 sort of the way it works is they have a laudable goal. So the mm-hmm. laudable goal is deep customer relationships, right? And that that's a good thing, where we have happy customers who do a lot of a lot of things with us. But then it gets then it gets reduced to a, a measure: how many accounts per customer? How many accounts does Pamela Wallen have? And that will be the definition of whether we have a deep relationship uh, <laughs> with her. And you may not go to be in a Wells Fargo for a year and never use your accounts, but you'd still be counted as a deep relationship because yeah. you have 14 accounts. And the terrible thing that happens then is then people focus on that one statistic and not... Deep customer relationships, and in the case of Wells Fargo, of course, they did something that imperiled all their customer relationships by opening accounts that uh, that people didn't ask for and didn't didn't uh, want, and betraying the trust entirely. But that's what happens when you when you reduce a broader, more sophisticated thing to a simple proxy, uh, and then apply that proxy, uh, you get into all sorts of all sorts of problems.
0: And we live now in the world, of course, of Amazon, which nobody, I don't know, does anybody care whether they have a deep, meaningful relationship or is it just about me ordering it this minute and getting it the next minute? Because if I don't want to go to Costco and if I don't care if the staff is nice to me, because I just only want it now.
1: Yeah, and and you know, I mean, I, I think Amazon is, ha, has done a wonderful thing in, yeah. pro, in providing that that for for people. But <laughs> my, my my view of Amazon is much different uh, now when you can't trust the the searches to come out as the top is the most the the most liked by by uh, customers, but rather the exactly. thing that Amazon <laughs> wants to sell. Right. And, and, and this is unfortunately a phenomenon that just is almost, you know, you know, you can't, you can't avoid it in, in the world of monopolies. When a company becomes a monopolist, they start serving themselves first and their, and their customers second. Right. And I think Amazon got to where it's gotten to by serving their customers brilliantly and now that it's gotten to there, there are more and more cases of it serving its customers uh, 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 in a way that takes takes advantage of them. Um, I mean,
0: I think we have a big problem with big tech because we have allowed all of them to become monopolies. Yeah,
1: absolutely, and they're and they're abusing us, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. Like, is is I mean, is it is it good for customers for Google? To, to say, if you use this service, uh, you have to sign an agreement saying you won't use any other uh, mm-hmm. service. Like, really, is that in the interests of the customer? Because you always have to ask that fundamental question. Is the thing that the corporation is doing in the fundamental is- interest of the customer? And if it's not, then you can ask, well, how is it getting away with that? Answer, it's a monopoly. Well, last time I checked, for over 100 years, we've had on the books laws that said, like, <laughs> use your monopoly. Uh, we uh, tell you to knock it off, fine you, break you up or whatever. And now, I, in, very few people know this, uh, Pamela, unless they're, they're geeks in, in antitrust uh, policy. But there's now an efficiency defense to merging, literally. In Explain. the Explain. It means that if, if, uh, uh, if notionally, if Bell uh, and and uh, uh, Rogers decided to merge uh, and could prove that their 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 businesses, their wireless businesses, uh, they could take out a whole bunch of costs and be more efficient. Uh, notionally, that's in a defense uh, against against uh, pr- prosecution.
0: So this is why efficiency has become so popular in business yes, yes, communities. Oh, absolutely. Yes. They're going to defend this yeah. one. Yeah. yeah.
1: Wow. But that goes against the, the fundamentals of the, the laws were put in place. The laws weren't put in place to improve efficiency. Right. The laws were put in place to protect customers against abuse, right? They were put in place first in first in, in the US to prevent these monopolies from charging incredible John D. Rockefeller for jacking up the price of heating oil uh, right. on people unreasonably and the sugar monopoly and the tobacco monopoly and et cetera. So this is where I say we've just become obsessed with the notion that the more efficiency is always better. And it just isn't. It's not <laughs> so- Sorry, let's go
0: to the prescriptions. So sure. you've been talking a little bit about that. So you're you would be saying to business leaders, you know, you you you've got to keep some slack in the system. Yes. You yep. can't take it all out. You've got to treat people. You've got to, you know, revive the golden rule. All of those things are they listening when it seems to be working for them even their compensation is based on uh, the efficiency model and maximizing profit.
1: Yeah, I, I I think so. I think it's a tricky one. I I do think that success stories like Four Seasons and Costco are having an impact, and and uh, and and I think people, business executives, are rethinking some of the things uh, that they've done in the past. But it's going to take a while. Is 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 my is my view. There are there are many incentives. On pushing for elimination of 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 slack this sort of short term focus on shareholder value uh, maximization um, uh, but i what what I think is is good is that the the pursuit of shareholder value maximization, which has been sort of a battle cry since the eighties, has not uh increased shareholder value right so, so so it, it's not working the way people, uh, business leaders uh, uh, think it is. That I've even said the crazy compensation systems for CEOs are providing an encouragement to them to do these 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 uh, sorts of things, and it's going to take some some work on on that. And that's where I think i mean i think business has got to start doing some different things as you say not going after every bit of uh, slack not reducing things to kind of machine like and and thinking more holistically but governments have to recognize too that that the regulatory legal structures are encouraging some of the bad things we we're, we're seeing so for example short termism a sort of short term shareholder uh, value uh, kind of uh, maxim, maximizing by getting rid of Anything resilient and, and getting rid of uh, mm-hmm. uh, slack, we could change that by by doing something that actually the French have already done. If you're a long term shareholder, you, know, in France, you get two votes for every share you own. I, I don't think that goes far enough. I think you should get a an extra vote. So, a if you buy 100 shares of 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 of, uh, of Rogers. Uh, on day one, I think you should vote, uh, uh, have hundred votes. On day two, 200 votes. On day three, 300 uh, 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 votes.
0: This is the Warren Buffett approach. You should buy a stock and be able to hold it forever. That's how yes, that's committed right. you should be.
1: That, that's, that's right, and I say that up to, up to 10,000 days. So that if you if you have a share, if you hold it for ten years or more, you vote ten thousand shares. So wow. you're a long-term shareholder; you're committed to it. So if a hedge fund comes along and starts buying up shares and getting and and getting a position in the stock, they have this difficult challenge because they're new new kid on the block, and so all their shares that they buy go to w- one vote, while yours, as a long-term shareholder, stay at ten thousand uh, and much harder for them to take over the company. We could do we could do that with a snap snap of the fingers and it would it would it would simply make the reward to the Pamela Wallins of, of, <laughs> of, 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 of investing for a long time actually mean something. Right now it doesn't mean a darn thing. Right?
0: No, we, and in fact you're looking for that quick flip all the time. That's the incentive.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, you're just on the share register for 100 shares, you know, yeah. 10, 10 years from 10 years from now. And they and they have to treat you the same way they treat somebody who's who's, um, uh, you know, bought the share yesterday. I mean, I'm very
0: surprised the French have done this. <laughs> so many other things are so screwy about what they do.
1: <laughs> I know. I, I, I rarely, I, I rarely, if ever, used the uh, use France as an example of, of clever, uh, clever policy. But you know, you got to, you got to, give them credit. The other thing, the other thing that's super important, I think, for governments is is to is to do something that we did in Canada in an in, a, in an important way, and that is right into legislation the requirement for periodic review, uh, and and revision. Uh, again, Canadians may not realize just how important the Bank Act is. So exactly, the US, and it's
0: about to be revised, yes. Yes,
1: that's right. But there's this crazy quilt of regulations in the U.S. on financial services. We have one big, important act, the Bank Act, 1871, four years after. We were a little, tiny little, little uh, juvenile country at, at the time. But the, the people putting that in place were so wise that they said every 10 years, this needs to be formally reviewed and revised. And that worked so well in keeping... And what, and what their thinking was, was, gee, I mean, this is an evolving sector. We don't know what, what regulation would be appropriate uh, uh, for 10 years from now, let alone 100 years from, from now. So let's just periodically revise it. So it's not political. It's not because the liberals are in power and they don't like the banks and they say, or the conservatives are in power and they have another grievance against bank. No, it's because the law says you have to do it. And it works so well in 1992, they shrunk the period to five years, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in 2008, nine, there are many reasons why Canada's financial system, you know, dramatically outperformed the the US. But I would argue that the Bank Act is one of them, which is we had a less than five-year-old revision Going into that, right? That and the
0: protections were strong, and people and had anticipated some of the changes with technology. Yeah, yeah.
1: Whereas the yeah. US had ancient, ancient, yeah. uh, inflexible uh, uh, regulation that allowed people to do all sorts of things that were that were kind of bad for it. And we had a we had a much more. I mean, I, I maybe think too much of her, but Julie Dixon is a hero in my in my uh, books. She's, she's the, the the superintendent of financial institutions, and she had much more of a dialogue based, uh, discussion based sort of a, a approach, right? So if she saw something that she didn't like, like thirty year mortgages with no uh, interest payments and a balloon payment at the end, yeah, she could, she could go to the bank presidents and say. Really, mm-hmm. no, really, and they would say, "Yeah, you're right," and not do it. Whereas in the U.S., it was much more of a, "If you don't like it, sue me," right? Yeah. And, and so this sort well, of,
0: and also their banking structure is state based and so different. And
1: yes, yes, absolutely, lots lots of reasons. But I think this, for me, this this idea of revising all legislation uh, because because it's a complex system right as i say in the book it's a natural system it's complex it's adaptive and so any regulation you put in place any legislation you put in place will be gained and so you're right. ready to to uh, to revise it and and we've shown with the bank act that in a hugely important piece of legislation not some fringe little legislation in a hugely right. important central we've done it and it's worked Awesomely, I, I I would argue because
0: that's the two sides of a, of adaptive. Yes, you've got to adapt to the new world, but also companies learn to adapt to those new rules and circumvent them.
1: Absolutely, uh, no, <laughs> You I...
0: talk about you know in the Clinton era in the U.S., but this applies to Democrats and Republicans and conservatives and liberals. That you know they say, okay, well we're not going to give you any tax benefits for making multi millions of dollars, but uh, then the companies come back and say, ah. Well, I think we'll give our CEO stock options. Yes. And circumvent the rule.
1: Yeah. And and just sell the salaries that they were trying to suppress. Went up 10x in the, in the, <laughs> in, the decade, in the decade after they did their clever thing to suppress them. So yeah, you just you just have to have to think it's a, it's a system. I mean, on this front, uh, Pamela, I love the the National Football League, right? So the National Football League has a competition committee that meets at the end of every season, and what they do is they tweak the rules to make sure that the game is is working out well and so if offense is getting an advantage over defense so it's too easy to score they'll mm-hmm. make they'll change the rules to make it easy for the defense to to uh, to uh, uh, to have more power in that in that power balance and they don't it, it's not a moral question right they, they they don't say you bad coach you figured out how to how to play the system game the system for your advantage they just say we gave you a year. Right. Yeah. And now and now we're fixing it. You know, you got to go back to innovating now. And that and is very. We that's should one have.
0: Now, that's one of the things that you talked about, because I think you were using the Southwest Airlines, that they are a low cost operator, um, but highest satisfaction uh, from customers. And that this process actually drives innovation because they have to figure out what's counterintuitive.
1: That, that's not intuitive. Exactly. Exactly. And even more like, yes, it's four things. So Southwest says we want to be the lowest cost airline, the highest employee satisfaction airline, the highest customer satisfaction airline and the most profitable airline. And you'd say, how can that be? Especially like, how can you be lowest cost and, and have the happiest employees? Right. Yeah. The way you get to be lowest cost is you hire them really, really, really cheaply. You bust the unions, you wh- whatever, uh, whatever you're going to do. No, you know, people think uh, Southwest is non-union. They're as unionized as, as American and, and, and United. And if you look at their wages, they pay the highest wages. And again, you say, how? How the heck do you do that? Well, it's your point, uh, Pamela. You have to be innovative. You have a system for 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 uh, for operating. You know, one one kind of uh, uh, jet point to point rather than all these things that make it so that you need fewer labor hours per passenger seat mile. So you can pay more for the labor uh, labor hours and still be lower costs. It drives you to be, uh, to be more clever than having just the one goal. If they said, we want to be the lowest cost airline, they could end up being like Eastern or continental light where nobody wants to fly them because it's miserable and nobody wants to work for them because it's miserable and they go and they go out of business. No, yep. you drive that, that, uh, that cleverness. And again, the only way Southwest could do that is not looking at it as a little a machine where you can break it into little pieces. They looked at it holistically to say, "How do we make this all kind of uh, work?" And that and and that's a a key thing. Um, and, and and it's and it's and anyway, I talk about it for educators too. I mean, we exactly. We to to great an extent in the education system, uh, not because we have bad teachers or malintentioned teachers by any, any stretch, but we uh, focus too much on reductionism saying, we will teach you these subjects as if the other subjects don't exist. And that exists all the way from elementary school up to what I used to do, MBA education. That is so true. Yeah. And, and, you know, and I know it's hard. I, I because I did it. It is it is harder to teach the interconnections uh, between them and models for dealing dealing with that. But I mean, I think we've gotten to a point in the world where it is just so obvious that this reductionism isn't helpful. We're putting out narrowly focused business people who are managing in silos and then complaining about the fact they are they have silos. Well.
0: well the other thing you point out, which I found really interesting from especially your point of view you 're an academic and and you have worked in all these institutes and you you use data and you 're actually saying that data has become the problem because it 's always backward looking you're you 're reacting to that information you collected yesterday about what you should be doing tomorrow
1: yeah no it's it's absolutely true and and uh, you know the interesting thing is it's not like this is some new insight right uh aristotle had this insight and aristotle he's, for many people don't, don't realize he's really the father of science he he studied how how you determine the cause of a given effect and he said mm-hmm. well this experimentation and and, and, and analysis to be, to be able to uh, tell you um, but as with most kind of theories and 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 tools, they're good for some things and not for others. And what he pointed out is, is that kind of, that analysis of past data is good for the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. So if I take this pen and I let go of it, guess what? It'll fall and it fell right. last week. It'll fall next week, it'll fall <laughs> years from now because it's in the part of the world where things cannot be other than they are. And And there he said, analyze the heck out of the data and make your decisions based on that. Why? Because whatever has been happening will happen in the future. But he pointed out, the guy who invented science pointed out, by the way, there's another part of the world where things can be other than they are. And I use this as an example, right? right. You know, Now you have to have within one, one arm's length or you get the hives, right? You, you freak out and say, oh my God, oh, where's my phone? That was not the <laughs> case in 1998 because yeah. the first The first smartphone was a BlackBerry in 1999. That's a part of the world where things are completely different than they they were. And what Aristotle said is, do not use my scientific method in that part of the world. What you have to do there is a possibility. Data-driven
0: decision-making when it comes to innovation can't actually work. By definition, it can't be innovative.
1: No. no. Right. Because you will just, you will just assume that the future is like the past and you will never innovate. And, and that is a huge problem in, in business. As much as we love data analytics and and all that stuff, the guy who invented analytics warned against its current usage, uh, uh, pattern and, and, you know, and, and that, and that's, and that's why, I mean, like, you know, uh, that's why the number one complaint I get from CEOs, if I ask of all the operations, what are you? What are you most depressed about? Uh, you know, is finance, uh, HR, operation? No, it's innovation, uh, and what they don't realize is that is that they inadvertently squelch innovation by by insisting that you prove with data that an innovation will work. <laughs> Now, there's a not going, smart, going to. Yeah, now, a very smart American uh, guy named Charles Sanders Peirce. He was one of the great American pragmatist philosophers, with William James and John Dewey, pointed out that no new idea in the history of the world has been proven in advance analytically. But <laughs> so when your boss asked you to prove that this will right. work, you would be the first person in the history of the planet who's been able to do that. So <laughs> good 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 luck to you.
0: When did you and what caused this kind of epiphany for you? What was your moment where you said, you know, the way we've been running, running the business school isn't? I know I read somewhere that you said that. Uh, Higher education, you think, peaked in about 2000. So that's 20 years ago. Um, But but when did this change for you, which is everything that we've been saying about data or that efficiency is good. What, What turned it for you?
1: well you know various things so my views on business education uh, came from from studying highly successful leaders and figuring out that they did something different than what was taught in 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 business school and that came in the early 2000s my epiphany on on aristotle and and it would be about 10 years 10 years after that around 2010 and i wrote an hbr article on uh, on uh, on that one and my epiphany on, on this book actually came when I, when I started reading the complexity theorists, uh, the people who've, <laughs> who study complex adaptive systems. Uh, and, uh, and I had a meeting with a guy named uh, 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 Professor M- McKelvey out in, uh, at UCLA. And, and, and that got me thinking that, wow, we're using a machine model when we need to use a model of more of a, uh, organic natural uh huh. so sort of a series a series of them
0: of things that uh, well and, and you've put me in mind again of another great warren buffett quote which is what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history
1: <laughs> he's good He's <laughs> yeah good. he's
0: very good on this stuff so
1: in, in munger too his his lifelong partner charlie munger also has yeah. uh, Million uh, uh, cool ways to conceptualize the world. Yeah.
0: So, do you see people adapting in a positive way? Like you've you've picked out some examples of business leaders that are trying to think a new thought here. Um, are you seeing evidence either that consumers are using their power to reward some companies or not? That governments are getting it. That business like, are you an optimist?
1: I, I, I am, uh, and you probably know that, uh, <laughs> wouldn't, I wouldn't do most of the things I do if I weren't a, 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 an optimist. So no, That is I exactly right. <laughs> uh, and, and as I say, the eight, I have 18 recommendations in the book, and the only way you can get to be a recommendation in this book is that it's worked somewhere already. It's working now, working somewhere else. It's worked in the past. And so I believe the solutions are all there. They're just not. Ubiquitous enough. So my hope is that people will learn from from the successes uh, to spread the usage pattern more broadly, and and I think we can fix this. And, and I'm kind of desperate about it because I like democratic capitalism, and I don't like flirting with uh, uh, with other other systems they are near and dear to my heart. Both sides of it, and so that's and are uh, you
0: really worried about that? Many people are. Is that this system is kind of run its course and particularly when you look at the economic uh, future and faith that awaits the millennials or the gen xers they don't have that sense of hope that the boomers
1: had yeah no i i that's why that's why i'm worried but i'm still am optimistic that we can we can all all kind of and i wrote this book about uh, america all americans need is hope uh, and they will hang in there for a long time with hope. And what what's happened is there's been too much of an extinguishing of of hope that that we have to we have to see turn a corner. I think if we see turn a corner, things aren't in natural system. Things aren't linear. It's not like it'll go like we, we've turned the corner and it then has to go up at this. It'll it'll accelerate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's that's my hope. But but. Business leaders, government leaders, educators, and citizens have all got to play a role in in that happening now.
0: I'm so glad you're thinking about all this stuff and more importantly, writing about all this stuff so the rest of us can read it. Really, it's really great to connect again.
1: Yeah, like, likewise. Thanks for taking the time to talk, talk about the book. And yeah, I, I hope people pick it up and buy it. For Canadians, right, what you'll see is a Disproportionate number of nice Canadian stories in the recommendations. Uh, <laughs> yes, uh, there especially. are a few. No, no, there, are, there, yeah. there, there yeah. are. There's Julie Dixon, the bank, the Bank Act, uh, so, you know, boycott, uh, boycotts. Uh, yeah. And so, so actually, Canada's got things it can feel pretty proud of in trying, uh, trying uh, new and different, uh, different things. Canada does best. When it is trying new things rather than saying, "Well, wait for things to happen elsewhere," uh, and the Bank Act revisions would be a perfect, perfect case in point. We didn't wait for somebody else to to show right. how that works. We just we just up and did it. And uh, you know, same with same with you know uh, you know uh, doc- privately delivered, publicly funded health healthcare, right. right? That combination was was innovative. It wasn't. It wasn't that uh, universal healthcare was innovative. It was our approach uh, uh, to it. So I would say to ca- Canadians, read the book and take pleasure in in seeing uh, Canada uh, kind of uh, as a as an innovator on some of these fronts.
0: Thanks so much, Roger.
1: Great. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
0: When more is not better, it's worth a read. But as you know, he's still an optimist. Published by Harvard Business Review Press. All the best. Talk to you soon, I hope.
1: All righty, thanks.